power on. Uh, in the first two-thirds of the 20th century, we went from not believing that heavier-than-air flight was possible to walking on the moon. So if, if you took a person off the street um, in 1900 and put them in a time machine and sent them forward to 1968 and let them look around and then sent them home again, uh, to, to tell the story of what they'd seen, they wouldn't even really have the conceptual or the verbal vocabulary to, to say what, what they had seen. Um, you can't, um, you can't ex talk about nuclear power uh, and, until you've explained the fact that uh, atoms have nuclei. Um, uh, you, you, you can't talk about the conversion of matter into energy without talking about relativity and, and quantum mechanics. So, um, the, uh, on the other hand, if you were to take a person from off the street in the year 1968 and send them forward to our time and do the same experiment, the results would be very different. They would say, well, the cars look different. You know, they look at, at least as different from our cars as our cars look from like 1940s cars. Um, everyone's got these things that are sort of like a cross between Captain Kirk's communicator and Dick Tracy's wristwatch. Uh, you know, and there's some other stuff that's, that's cool. There's this internet thing, you know, typewriters have been replaced by by these TV devices. Um, there's, um, uh, if you look up in the sky, you see 737s and 747s flying overhead just like we have, except in some ways they've gone backwards because they don't have SSTs. Uh, and they, there's no sign that they're going to get them back anytime soon. Um, uh, human space travel is a lost art. We, 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 we 1968 people can send people to the moon and bring them back. They can't send humans into low Earth orbit. They have to hitch rides off of the, the Russians. Um, diseases that we can easily treat with antibiotics uh, have become intractable and are making a, a comeback. And even, um, even diseases that can easily be snuffed out by uh, vaccines are uh, are, are coming back simply because kids aren't getting, people, parents aren't getting their kids vaccinated um, because they don't believe in science anymore. So the, um, I mean, to, to be fair, I think that there's a partial explanation for all of this in the rise of the personal computer and the, of the internet, which has siphoned off a huge fraction of our inventive energies to work on forms of progress that aren't as obvious as space rockets and nuclear bombs. I saw the best minds of my generation writing spam filters. <laughs> but, but if you look at where we went from 1900 to 1968 and where we've been from then to now, it seems as though at about that time, I won't pick a specific year, but somewhere around then, we kind of slammed into a brick wall as far as sort of big innovations in what our physical built environment looks like.
I think that this is partly due to a kind of allergic reaction that we had simply to the, the sheer amount of change that had occurred and in particular to the um, some of the environmental uh, side effects um, that had been kind of blithely ignored up to that point. So I get that. I, I was certainly raised to be an environmentalist and all of my knee-jerk uh, reactions uh, are kind of uh, in, in tune with those of the, of the environmental movement. Um, but Deepwater Horizon and Fukushima kind of converted me to the view that the the threat now has become not too much innovation, but not enough innovation. The reactors that melted down at Fukushima were built in the early 1970s based on designs from the 1960s. So if you look under the hood of a 1960s automobile, if you can even find one that's still running, and you compare it to what you see under the hood of uh, a modern vehicle, um, it has to send a little chill down your spine to, to think that nuclear reactors built in that or designed in that same era are still hot today. Earth 2019 Dominant species, human Galactic potential rating, zero Cultural affiliation Combination of government and global businesses, corporatism, legacy institution. Species still conservative, superstitious, and religious. Ecologically illiterate, largely unaware of cosmological foundation of love. Level of technological dependence is disturbingly higher than the galactic standard. Species distracted and behavior controlled by technology companies. System error. Advanced concepts detected beyond normal human levels. New galactic potential rating, over 9000. Transmission type, podcast. Host, The Man of Tomorrow. Brian Sovereign. Source, Sovereign Tech. I know everybody was asking, where is the man of tomorrow? Where is the golden stallion? Where is Savzu? Where is that woo, that rated R radio star, baby? Well, don't you worry, because he's right here. <laughs> Just been, oh, oh, man. One day, the stories I am going to tell, I tell you. <laughs> Actually, I was going to say, I tell you, but I don't tell you. One day, though, hot damn. <laughs> so. Uh, but it is time for that Sovereign Tech. Of course, had a had a kind of an odd release schedule recently. Um, again, that that's all that's going to get cleared up uh, very, very soon. So just, you know, making changes here and there and getting everything worked out. But, you know, when you're running an entire network now and, you know, you're trying to get various, uh, well, various names and everything, all this stuff lined up. Well, anyway, those uh, and I know I have listeners who also uh, may run podcast networks. 
um, and of course run podcasts, you know how this stuff goes. But anyway, regardless of all that, you're not here to hear me talk about that. You're here for the latest woo, science and tech news, baby. How about this? Actually, I don't think I linked to it in the show notes, so we'll call them a little bit of an audible here. Uh, but how about this? Apparently there is, or well, anyway, there is the potential for life on Pluto. Can you get over that? <laughs> I was, I was pretty blown. They're finding some, uh, well, some interesting, well, basically, I mean, the new horizons, uh, spacecraft might as well call it that, um, found a, found a liquid ocean about the size of Texas. What are they calling it? Sputnik Pl- Planitia, I think. And there it goes. I mean, with various methane and everything, like it could be just warm enough to where there could be life on Pluto. Never would have expected that. I mean, and of course we're talking about, you know, might just be simple life. I mean, uh, you know, we're not talking about sapient life or anything like that. This isn't, you know, Zachariah Sitchin's uh, 12th planet or anything along those lines. But fascinating nonetheless. Kind of blew my mind when that that headline crossed my bow. I was like, well, holy shit. (laughs) So, well, I mean... You know, as, as more gets figured out about this, well, I mean, but that's huge. The size of Texas, you know, I mean, people don't think about it because, well, it's America, but, uh, I mean, Texas really in any other part of the world would be, would very much be its own country and be a goddamn big one at that. Uh, so we're talking about a very large ocean. Um, anyway, fascinating stuff. Uh, I don't think I got a link in the show notes for that, but you can certainly uh, look into it. Just type in Lake Texas, Pluto. And well, I don't know, actually don't do that. Who knows what the fuck you'll end up with if you type that into a search engine, <laughs> but you get my deal. Anyway, let's, uh, let's move on from that a little into, into tech news. that I think is, uh, well, this is something that I think was a long time coming. And in fact, it's really, ironically, it's history repeating itself. And it, it really is. Um, I am, I am curious. I, I don't think, I mean, cause this is really fresh. Uh, you know, we're talking early, early June, 2019, when this is getting recorded here. Um, I am curious what the response is going to be to this and how well this model is going to work out. But basically we have heard from Mozilla that they are going to be, they are looking into by the end of the year and basically not looking into, but this is going to happen they are going to release a premium version of Firefox. Now, what does that mean? That means a version of Firefox that you are going to pay for. Now, we don't have a whole ton of details as in, is this going to be some sign, some kind of subscription model where you pay a couple bucks a month or something along those lines? Is it going to be where you pay a one-time fee? You know, what is this pay structure going to look like for Firefox premium? And what exactly are you going to get with Firefox premium? Now, while I think a lot of people would find this, frankly, surprising, I don't think that, I mean, or what you do need to understand is it was inevitable, especially the direction. And we've been talking about this over the past few months. A lot of the dramatic changes that Mozilla has been making to Firefox really ever since they came out with the quantum engine was that November, 2017, I think when they, when they finally, you know, came out with their big revamp of, of Firefox. Um, This is something that we figured was, you know, that that was going to have to come because Firefox. And as I've said, even on recent episodes of Sovereign Tech, they the best thing that they can do, okay, to try and get some kind of user share, some kind of mind share is to double down on privacy. And they've been doing that like they are blocking so many different trackers by default, so many other things. And I mean, it 
And also, I mean, a prime time for them to take advantage of this. I think we talked about this on last week's uh, Zomia One Underground Q&A, which you got to be a member of Zomia One Underground to get access to that audio. Uh, but please sign up. Go to ZomiaOne.com. Look on the left-hand side, this left-hand side, and you can become a member. Uh, there, I mean, it's not expensive, folks, unless you want it to be. Uh, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to argue with how much money you want to, uh, you know, give to support um, this show. But regardless, we talked about it on there that... Um, so Chrome for or Google is they are going to in an upcoming version. And I think this is also by the end of the year, they are implementing into Chrome what they call manifest V3, which is a new set of standards for the Google Chrome web browser. Part of this new set of standards is something that is going to effectively break common functionality of a lot of ad blockers, okay? You think like uBlock Origin and some others, okay? Which uBlock Origin, of course, I've been recommending for years on Sovereign Tech. And I'll say this very quickly. I, you know, you're gonna, you hear from uh, news sources and whoever else all the time, oh, you know, don't use ad blockers because that's how our sites make money. That's how this makes money, blah, blah, blah. That, as I've said for years on this show, is not your concern. You as the end user, your number one concern when you are using a computer or any kind of computing device, smartphone, tablet, whatever, your number one concern is for that device to be as secure as fucking possible. That is your job. That's your only job. And running an ad blocker is about much more than just really, frankly, making the internet work as it should with decent speed, you know, to fuck all this JavaScript or whatever. Ad blockers will block, uh, you know, cryptocurrency, um, you know, miners that run in JavaScript on websites, ad blockers can can block all kinds of malware that get fed through ads. There are a million reasons besides blocking ads that running an ad blocker is essential to the security of your device and thus your digital life. Run an ad blocker. Do it. Okay. Let, you know, all these other people that, that actually feed the ads, that's their job is to figure out how to get their ads to you. Okay let them worry about that. You do not need to be put on some guilt trip about it. Okay. If these people want to run ads, hell, they can run ads in a podcast. I've got one right here for you. If you want to run ads in it. Okay. Go ahead and give me an email, bbs at sovereigntech.com because you know, with podcasts, that's a great way to get ads out there. And there's nothing wrong necessarily with ads, but ad blockers are essential to your security. And in my opinion, the proper functioning of the fucking internet, um, hell just before going on for the show or just before recording this show, I think I was going to, uh, to, to CNET and even with my ad blocker on, there was so much fucking JavaScript there. I mean, the site was slow as fuck. It was horrible, horrible. So anyway, th I mean, there, there's a whole conversation to have around that, but basically Chrome is not going to allow your favorite ad blockers, or I would say the ad blockers worth their salt to really work within it. Now, I mean, originally Google had kind of backtracked on this, but now they just doubled back down and they said, oh no, 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 we're going to go forward with it anyway, which is crazy, but it's also a prime time. And you know, Firefox is, if Mozilla is going to try to create a paid version of Firefox, now is the time because this is a very, you know, getting rid of ad blockers, which were growing in use, thankfully, again, for the security of everyone on planet earth and the security of the internet and your devices. I'm glad that pe that they were growing in use. This is the time where people, I think are finally questioning, Hey, um, fuck, you know, <laughs> like, we can't use ad blockers. Okay. We're going to go to another web browser a again, as they should. So if Mozilla wants to try something daring, if Mozilla wants to try something game changing, I can't think of a much better time. 
Okay, and th this is this is really it for them to do so. Now, what exactly would a paid version of a web browser look like? First off, let, let's have a little history here, okay? And that is, this is not the first time that web browsers have been paid for, right? Uh, in fact, Opera originally, and we're talking decades ago, Opera was a paid for web browser, okay? And they were fairly successful at the time. Um, Internet Explorer and eventually Firefox, but basically Internet Explorer, Netscape Navigator, their free offerings were, you know, so compelling and dominant, uh, and one can around as far as talking about Microsoft, one could argue, uh, the ethics around that dominance, but regardless that, you know, I mean, opera just like that paid for model just couldn't last. Okay. But now at see at the time, I don't think it worked for opera, not because opera wasn't a great browser. It was, and it had a great rendering engine at the time. Now it's just based off of blink, but it had a different rendering engine at the time. That was, that was fantastic. Um, not that it wasn't worth the money, but I think today, now that the web browser is really the main thing that anybody even uses with a computer, it is the portal to the world. It is the single most important piece of software outside of the operating system to the point that Chromebooks are popular, which basically are just a web browser on a computer. It's not even an operating system. That's not really true anymore, right? Because of course, Chrome OS can do so much more offline. Now it can do, uh, you know, it can run Linux software. It can run uh, Android apps and so on. So it's so much more than just a web browser, but it, you know, had to be fairly successful to even make it to this point when it was really just a web browser, but that just proves the point. Okay. And in some ways, Chromebooks prove that people will, will pay a premium for a web browser, right? For a secure web browsing environment. Again, right now, we don't know anything about what this is actually going to cost. Um, I, I would not, be, I'll say this quickly, and then we'll talk about what could features look like and all this different stuff. And there's still going to be a free version of Firefox as well. We'll talk about all that. Um, I think that they could get away with a, with a monthly fee or like a yearly fee, like a subscriber model. I think that's probably the most likely direction that this would end up going would be a subscriber model because everything's going to sub to a subscriber model. Um, I mean, you can only get so many users and even on the internet, really, you can only get so many users. And basically if everybody bought Firefox, you know, tomorrow, and it, it came out with a, just a one-time fee, a one set price and there was not a subscriber fee of any kind. Um, I mean, eventually Mozilla's going to run out of money, you know, or like they'd have to charge again for it. And there's lots of apps on mobile platforms that have done this, where they charged a one-time fee. Then they started switching to where there's specific features that would end up getting you, um, you know, where, where you had to sign up for a subscriber model for this kind of like Plex, like Plex had done that, or where even other apps like T-Torrent and some others where they charge a one-time fee, you know, however many years ago, five, six, seven years ago. And then, you know, the amount of people that it would actually want to torrent on an Android device, you know, that, that, that hit its upper limit. And so they're like, uh, well, okay, we're going to release a new version. And then everybody's going to have to get charged for that again. And we'll take the old version out of the play store. And so, you know, people would end up, would end up having to pay again, if you wanted to reinstall that software on say the new smartphone or tablet that you got. Right. So, I mean, people do that. That's what I'm saying is that there's an, if a one-time fee for software, there's kind of an upper limit to that, unless you're going to charge again for a new version in the future, which maybe that's what Mozilla would do. But I, I don't know how well that's going to work for them. 
ultimately, because if you have to, you know, pay for a new version every couple of years or something like that, you could say people bought whole new operating systems. So maybe that could work, but even Microsoft has fallen away from that. Everybody's going to a subscription model. Now, the reason that they might have a good argument or, and I wouldn't say a good argument, but what in the conventional sense could seem like a good argument, I'm not necessarily agreeing with it, but what could seem like a good argument is that we know that Mozilla had partnered with actually with the company that makes Proton Mail because Proton Mail came out with their own VPN service called Proton VPN. So now if say a VPN was a premium VPN, an unlimited VPN, maybe they're in the free version of Firefox. Um, there would still be some limited bandwidth of, of, because with the free version that we know, basically any feature that's in Firefox right now will stay in the free version. Okay. And then any new features will be a part of say the premium edition that you pay for. So if there's a VPN service that comes along with it, yeah. I mean, if you wanted to charge, I don't know, a, a cup of coffee, whatever that ends up costing you in whatever part of the world you are for, to use Firefox premium any month, and you were getting a VPN service out of that, I, I think that could be, that could very much be worth it. Also, Firefox has their, um, has their password manager service, like was it lockbox or whatever that's built into it. Uh, if you added some newer features to that, you could kind of add, you know, create a tiered system kind of like LastPass has where there's a free version of LastPass, but then there's the premium version of LastPass. And so if they created a LastPass competitor, you know, if Mozilla did that, that was part of Firefox premium, that could make it worthwhile to have a subscription service. Basically if Firefox Okay. You know, came out with a bunch of features that you, a privacy features that you already pay other services for, but instead you would just pay for all of it. And it would all come with your Firefox account, which is already a thing. Then, you know, then I could, a monthly fee or a yearly fee for Firefox premium would become an attractive package. Quite frankly, it really would. Um, and Firefox has started to acquire other companies and everything. In fact, I'll tell you this. So they've already got the deal with Proton VPN and with the company that makes Proton Mail. If Firefox bought Proton Mail and like turned that into like Firefox Mail or something along those lines, and you ended up getting, you know, PGP encrypted email, you know, you got you just got this entire privacy package with Firefox. Um, and maybe even if they did some kind of cloud storage service or something like that, I think Mozilla might have a winner on their hands. I mean, I mean, really like if, again, they're doubling down on the privacy, which is the right direction to go. Um, I think, and I mean, do I think just Firefox is going to do this? Oh no, 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 no. I, I, I think that a lot of companies or I, I think even Google might do this. They kind of did where you could pay them for, you know, to replace the ads, right? There was the Google, I forget what it was called, but where you, you could pay to not get ads on various sites but you'd pay Google directly and then Google would give that money to the various news organizations or whatever. Okay. Um, I think Google could get in on this game where they, you know, maybe they want to upcharge to say like G suite subscriptions with which they've been constantly giving, you know, specific features to G suite, uh, subscribers. Okay. And you know, they'd want to get in on that, which that ultimately of course competes with office 365. Right. But basically all of these companies want to get you on some kind of consistent subscription model, you know, and, and paying that you're, you know, you paying into them and you do it into perpetuity and you basically kind of end up, uh, you know, 
owning nothing. Now, this might get into the importance of this, of my, my next, the one company that I don't know would exactly get into this. I mean, they kind of already have with iCloud, but Apple might steer clear of charging for, you know, basically charging for the web browser. And really, Microsoft might end up doing the same thing, uh, though maybe not. Maybe Microsoft eventually will bake in. Um, I mean, we've already been talked. We talked last uh, the last episode. We talked about how there is this new operating system, uh, what they called it, Modern OS, right? Uh, coming from Microsoft, where I mean, I don't, well, I, I've already said that I think Microsoft eventually might just have you charge a subscription fee for the fucking operating system, not just the web browser. But I mean, this is the direction all this stuff is going. It's absolutely inevitable, and it's inevitable for Mo, for Mozilla specifically because if they are doubling down on privacy, you know, understand ninety percent of what they make comes from like uh, you know deals that they make with search engines. Um, I mean, they've got to find alternative forms of bringing in money. They, they really do because those search engines rely upon ads. But then if Mozilla is blocking all the fucking ads, I mean, there's going to be a major conflict of interest there. How is Mozilla going to make money? Well, this is how they do it. And I don't, I mean, for, for the average user, I think it's actually a great option. I think it's a great fucking deal. And also it speaks to what I have been saying on Sovereign Tech for a while, especially in the Zomi One Underground Q&As that we've had. Where I said, and I, and I know I've said this on the show as well, we have the idea that software is free, you know, I mean, free, free as in, you know, free as in freedom and not as in beer. Great. You know, free as an open source. Fuck yes. Absolutely. Free as in Libra. Please. I, I'm absolutely software should be that way. But the idea that we don't pay for software, that has to go the way of the dodo. That, that, because you know, I mean, it, it's pretty much a trope now, but it's fucking true. People are tired of hearing it. But it's true. If you don't pay for the software, like with dollars, you're paying for it some other way, generally with data or whatever. I mean, that's not necessarily true for if you think of apps like, uh, well, well I'm, what I'm recording this podcast on right now, like Audacity, um, you know, or you think like Linux. I mean, there's ways that companies make money off of Linux, right? Where, you know, uh, Canonical, who make Ubuntu, who maintain Ubuntu, they make money off of Ubuntu by charging for um, tech support with it. Right. But they don't actually make any money off of selling Ubuntu to you, you know? Um, but yeah, the idea of, of, you know, free software that's gotta go. I don't really like the idea of subscription models, but I get it. Like, I understand that that's the direction that, that people are going. I mean, I think Mozilla, you know, they, they could really, this, this could have broad, broad ramifications. And if this did really well, um, I think that would it would allow them to have a lot more independence in what they want to implement. Maybe they could put in cryptocurrency wallets, which they've already been talking about uh, you know, for some time now, actually. I mean, there's, there's a lot of options to run with here. So it'll be curious to keep an eye on. It's supposed to be coming towards the end of the year, but don't be surprised if everybody else does this. Even if maybe it won't be directly, but indirectly, you will ultimately be paying for a web browser. Whether Even if you're using Microsoft Edge, you are going to be, you're paying for, you know, the OS, or maybe there will be specific features for Office 365 that get baked into Microsoft Edge, right? Um, with Apple, you pay the Apple tax with everything that you fucking buy from Apple. Okay, so you're basically pay, paying for Safari. And ever since Safari stopped getting developed for Windows, it's not available anywhere else. And Safari is a fine browser. I mean, it really, really is. If you're an Apple user, if I were an Apple user, I'd be using Safari exclusively. No, no question about it. Um, 
So, I mean, but ultimately, you know, one way or another, you're going to pay for these things in, in some, some, some form and Firefox, again, they're going to, there's going to be the free version that has everything you're used to right now, including the use of ad blockers, I would assume. Um, but then there is going to be the premium version. Again, if they offer a lot of services with that premium version, the VPN, uh, perhaps, you know, some of the running through Tor and some, some other options, uh, as well as, like I said, I think it'd be a no brainer if they created some kind of email suite within it. Um, you know, maybe that's why they kind of dumped Thunderbird is because they're just going to bake it into Firefox, right? I mean, they didn't dump it, but it's not as heavily supported, uh, you know, and, and have Proton Mail there. I, I think that would just be, I mean, it's a no brainer again. It's, it's an absolute no brainer if that's what they end up doing. So we'll be keeping an eye on this. I'm intrigued to see how this shapes up. Now, speaking of paying for things that maybe you wouldn't think you normally pay for, um, I've been pushing hard and it's very clear that especially with the end of end of life support, for uh for windows 7 it's very clear that a lot of people i mean fuck governments companies organizations all, all kinds of you know just all across the board you're hearing a story almost by the day where they are switching over to linux um even the i think the chinese government was it like they're they're switch they're going to create their own os apparently it's a wonder what exactly that means i mean because creating your own os today is i mean i'm not i'm not opposed to the concept it's just that's that's a that's a tough challenge, you know, cause you're going to want to borrow from other code bases, but it, whatever. Uh, but you're hearing it every day of people. They are just leaving Microsoft in droves, which is probably why Microsoft is making a lot of their services available, you know, cross platform, which they've been doing for a while, but now it's even more right. Like even, uh, you know, their, 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 their AV software, their malware software, Microsoft defender, which used to be windows defender. Well, it's not windows defender anymore. Now it's Microsoft defender uh, defender and it's available for Mac OS even. Um, and it's likely going to come out for Linux as well. Um, but, you know, I mean, there's a big push for this. I've been pushing for this. I really do think that 2019 is a banner year where people, more people than ever will be jumping on Linux. I'm excited for that. Uh, I have recommended a few different ones. Um, there is the Linux from Intel that I have recommended uh, people check out. There is the, uh, there's of course Ubuntu, which I recommend. I, I've always said, stick with the biggies, right? Because even ones that people think are wildly popular, and I know so many people use like Linux Mint, the development team is, or the dev team there, you know, there's all kinds of internal strife and everything. And they're basic. I mean, I, I don't want to insult them by saying this, but they're kind of just hobbyists. So there's no real money involved. Right. And so, you know, people can just like say, well, fuck it. I'm not going to make this anymore because their livelihood doesn't necessarily depend upon it. Um, but I've been saying stick with the bigger Linux operating systems, but one I want you to check out that is getting really, really interesting. Another one, just as a recommendation quick, is Zorin OS, and that's Z-O-R-I-N, and then, of course, OS. Um, this is one where there's a free version, kind of like we were just talking about with Firefox, with Firefox Premium coming down the line. But there's a free version, there's also a light version which apparently can run on computers going all the way back to like some odd 15 years old. In fact, even on their website, it's great when they, when they're talking about the light version of Zorin OS, um, they're basically saying they're, they're like, they show a picture of an old, you know, four by three CRT and uh, man, that, that brings back memories. Um, but they also have an ultimate version of it. They have an ultimate version of Zorin OS, which costs you the one-time fee of $39. Now I know you're saying, what the fuck, why would I pay for Linux? Well, this is a very new development. Zorin OS has something is, is a version of Linux that's been developed. It was developed by two guys. In fact, I think they're, they're brothers and their last name is Zorin. And they've been working on this since like high school, which is amazing. <laughs> 
And now they basically want to make some money off of it. And I, I don't blame them. And it's a very, I've gone through the install process on it and everything. Very, very slick. Um, they have a feature that some of these features are only available in the ultimate version. Okay. But again, this isn't a subscription model. This is a one-time fee. I like that a lot more. Um, but you have like Zorin connect where it can do kind of like, what was that gnome connect or KDE connect where, uh, it can send notifications from like your Android phone to your desktop and all this stuff. I mean, there's a lot of modern features here. It's designed where you can choose if you want it to look like Mac OS, or if you want it to look like windows, or if you just want it to look like your favorite Linux distro, you can, you know, you can do that too. Um, it has games in mind and in fact it has wine very much built in. There's a lot of built in uh, cross-platform functionality with it, which I think a lot, I mean, you can do that with Ubuntu and you can do that with other, uh, distributions, but this with Zorin OS, a lot of your ability to install software, say from windows or something that you want to, you know, try and run in Linux is built into the package right away. So this is just a very interesting one uh, to look at. And because it's one that is looking to make money, you know, and, and specifically designed to get people, you know, to, to get people from that were either using Mac OS or that were using, uh, you know, windows to get them away from that and to give them an environment that looks familiar to them, but it's still unlike Linux mint where it, it still has like a fan, a financial model built into it. I'm a little more intrigued by this. So if you, if you're looking like, wow, which Linux distro do I use? Consider this and you can run it for free at first. And then if you like what you see, you know, I recommend, sure, you know, hash out the 39 bucks. Um, I don't have a problem with Linux distributions getting paid for at all. I mean, that that's not unheard of. That's a thing that's happened in the past as well. It was, a, was it Mandrake or whatever Linux? Was was that what it was called? I, there's been plenty that, that cost money. Um, but regardless, I would add this right now, what I've looked into, I would add it to my list of acceptable Linux distros, you know, right up there with what Intel's doing, right up there with Ubuntu, uh, and of course, Tails, I mean, you know, go down, go down a little, it's not a long list, Fedora is another one, it's not a very long list, uh, or Cubes OS, but this is, you know, in that, in that number, I'm very intrigued by it, so do check that out. Um, let's get into our last bit for the foreplay, where we talk about all of the uh, little stories, and this is a quick update on something that I uh, experimented with and um, have, well, you could say I tested it out if you want. I mean, that, that's, that's a little more than an experiment, but regardless, um, I tried this out and that is uh, fitness trackers. Now I have historically been very, very much against uh, fitness trackers because we've already seen, especially where courts of law will, you know, will, will request say the data from Fitbit, and they will use that as evidence, you know, for or against you. But I mean, again, always remember that's, you know, court of law is very much a two-edged sword. Actually, I'd, I'd argue it's, <laughs> it's not a three-edged sword, but it's a two-edged sword with a point. No matter what, you're going to get it. Whether you go in there and you think you win or lose, you, you're, you're ultimately screwed by a court of law, everybody involved. Um, I mean, that's the nature of laws and government for you, but regardless, um, you know, we know that these are, this is data that would be used against you and it's just more of you getting tracked. And if you care about your privacy, you don't want that to happen. However, there is an argument for, or th there's a couple other arguments to be had here. One is, and I, I agree with this argument that basically if you carry around a smartphone on the regular, while there are things you could do to enhance a lot of your privacy, lots of encryption that can be done, et cetera, et cetera. Ultimately, you know, you're never going to have real serious 
privacy if you are carrying a smartphone around with you all the time. I'm not saying if you own a smartphone. If you own a smartphone, there's ways to mitigate that and you don't have to have it with you at all times. But if you're a person that carries it with you at all times and, you know, then you cry when Facebook does such and such, you know, and they don't care about my privacy, well, you obviously don't care a whole ton either. You have this thing with you at all times. Um, so there's that argument. Okay. And that means that really, you know, if you have a smartphone, how much worse is a, is a tracker, right? Is, is like a, a fitness tracker or an Apple watch or whatever. Not much worse. Granted also you want to say, you know, you want to make it hard for them and, and just having a fitness tracker kind of makes it easier. However, if you do have to have a smartphone with you and at, and at all times, and I know I have a lot of listeners that are that way, you know, I'm, I'm not here to insult you. Okay. Um, I have to carry my smartphone with me way more than I care to. Um, but you know, but I really do. And because of that, something that I wanted to do was, is I didn't want to have to constantly look at my phone. A, I didn't want my phone buzzing in, my, in you know, buzzing my ass. Okay. Like, you know, buzzing my back pocket. All right. I like to keep it very silent. Um, and I, but I, what I found myself, what was happening to me is I was constantly like turning on the screen. In fact, when my phone updated to Android Pi to Android nine, um, and you have the, what is it? The digital well-being app that Google put into, into Android. When I looked at how many times I had activated my screen, I was like, my jaw hit the floor and I was like, what the fuck am I doing? And I mean, I, I didn't like it, you know, and I didn't like that. I was just constantly checking the screen or what I'd even do is, is that like, say at the kitchen table, I would put the phone down and I'd leave the screen on and I would just constantly while I'm cooking or whatever, you know, I would just constantly look over to see, Oh, is there a notification on the screen? Is there a note? It was so bad. Okay. Now one could get into that. There might be certain things going on in one's life. Why you might want to do that. That's another conversation, but basically I did not want to be such a slave to the phone. So what I did was, is I bought a Xiaomi Mi Band 3. And I did a full review of this uh, some months back. Actually, it was, well, not a year ago, but it was some months back. I did a full review of it. And the, the only reason that I got this, I actually turned all of the fitness tracker features off. Okay, I mean, I, I toyed with them a little bit just to see what it's like. But then I ended up turning, you know, heart rate monitor, all that stuff. Just turned it all the fuck off. I didn't care about it. All I did was I had it for the time. I actually liked the fact that it could receive weather updates. That was kind of cool. And so, you know, I had the weather updates that would, that, that I could look at. That's really, you know, honestly, and I, I think I, I said this during my review, one of the things that I just wish a, I don't want to, I really don't want a smartwatch. I love watches. I wear a watch all the time. Um, right now I'm wearing a, a Casio, a Casio, uh, uh, G-Shock. Anyway, the, I love watches. The one thing I wish they would do, I mean, you get these watches like this watch. I look at my G-Shock right now. Uh, it has like, you know, moon phases. It has all this other wacky shit on it, but I just, I wish they would have the temperature. Now I understand that that's tough to do in a small package, especially one that's attached to your arm that has kind of a, you know, your arm, which is like this heat source that can throw, you know, the weather off or whatever. I just, I wish then my watch would do that. That's the main thing I wish. So I actually, I kind of like the fact that the Mi Band 3 that I had could also tell me the weather. Of course, it was only telling me that feeding off of the app in my smartphone. So it wasn't like I wasn't still carrying my smartphone around. It's just that I wasn't pulling the smartphone out. And even that was a win. Okay. So, but the main thing, you know, time, weather, nice, 
the main thing was that it could give me and I and I could set which which apps I wanted to get notifications from is I could get the notifications that I wanted or needed and just a little buzz on my arm. It was quiet, you know, on my wrist. And I would know that there's a notification. And I know to pull the phone out and it was life changing. Seriously. I mean, I'm not kidding. Life changing. Okay. Because I stopped looking at the fucking phone. I stopped looking at that screen. My phone in a very real way, very much became an afterthought. And even if you had like Bluetooth headphones, you would not need to, you know, when you're around the house, you wouldn't even need to carry your phone around, you know, because you'd have that Bluetooth connection and you get notifications when it's there and it would notify you if you're out of Bluetooth range and all that too, which is nice. Okay. So I, I mess with that. And for those of us who need to have that phone near us all the time and are tired of, you know, like constantly checking for notifications, making sure we didn't miss anything, the Mi Band 3 or a fitness tracker tracker in general, or if you're, you know, in the, in the Apple ecosystem, you know, uh, an Apple watch is, is where you could go with, um, I mean, worked very nice for that. Now, granted it can get to where, you know, like it, it starts buzzing too much on you and, and you almost feel like you're, you're in a Pavlovian experiment of some kind, you know, I mean, it can go the other direction too. But if, again, if you're that type, it can be really, really helpful to keep you from constantly looking at your, at your phone screen. I mean, cause I don't need to look at my phone screen. I'm not looking at social media. I don't give a rat shit about that. There's not much else I need to look at my phone screen for. Okay. I only, you know, use my phone for when like there's something that has to quickly get done. It's not really there for the pleasure. Okay. So, you know, and it's there for some communication, you know, if you're there for the pleasure, I mean, maybe then this doesn't make sense because you're staring at your phone screen. Well, I would argue way too much anyway, but whatever, that's, that's me being judgy (laughs) anyway. Um, but there is in case you are interested in still doing this sort of thing. Okay. There is uh Xiaomi did announce that they are going to come out with the Mi Band 4, which we knew was going to happen because the Mi Band 3, which only costs like 30 bucks was a wild success because it was so well built. I mean, it's waterproof and all this. And I mean, I've had, I had mine for a while. I've had it in gyms. I mean, the thing's practically indestructible. It really is pretty slick and it has great battery life and all that. Um, you know, it's, it was pretty much, of course, they're going to do a Mi Band 4. Why wouldn't they, right? Since the Mi Band 3 was, uh, was so successful. Um, anyway, they did announce that it's going to be, it will be released. Um, it's coming out middle of June, just a few days after this recording, but that'll only be in China. But later on in the year, they expect it to go to Europe and probably, well, America could be questionable when you're considering the way that, that American tariffs and other legal sanctions, um, are well, how they're being engaged with Southeast Asian countries and companies, uh, just think Huawei and, and others. I mean, it's, it's really fucking insane, but, uh, you know, we would expect these, I mean, maybe you could just buy a European one if they end up not coming to America anyway. Um, but it's going to have a slightly larger, almost a full inch size screen on it. And it is going to be, it's a AMOLED. So it's going to be color, full color, which the Mi Band 3 was just uh, like a, well, it wasn't black and white. It wasn't an e-ink screen, but it was basically black and white. But now it's going to have a uh, full color. It's going to have the same water resistance uh, rating that, you know, where it's basically waterproof up to like 50 meters or so. Um, and there's going to be a little more motion tracking. Like there's something like there's, there's swim, you know, if you're a swimmer, there's a degree of swim tracking. Uh, and not a whole, the, the, it is going to have, one of them is going to have NFC and the other is not. And the NFC is going to be able to work with, well, again, this is only getting released in China at first, but it will work with Alipay. It would be interesting if it ends up working with Google pay when it comes to Europe or America. 
we'll keep an eye on that. You know, I mean, because I'm, I'm intrigued by this, I'll admit, um, because the Mi Band 3, again, was really, really helpful as far as notifications go. Again, that's really the only thing I cared about was, you know, I, I always wear, I'm so used to wearing a watch. I like to know the time at all times. Um, you know, it was great for a watch, great for the weather. And again, great for those notifications. Um, and apparently this one isn't going to cost any more. I mean, it, it's, it's only going to be like the, the non NFC version, at least in China is going to chalk up to about 25 bucks. The NFC version is going to be about $33. Uh, but yeah, th- there is going to be a new one. They even have like an Avengers limited edition one. I mean, fuck that shit. Fuck the Avengers, but <laughs> But whatever. I mean, this is interesting. Something to keep an eye out for. Um, I will probably be doing a, a review uh, of one of these when they do come out. Um, I'm not sure what other features. Th- th- there wasn't like a very long feature list. So I don't know what the point is to having the color screen. Apparently it has a 20-day battery life. I think the Mi Band 3 had like a full month. But it's something that's coming a little bit prettier. Who knows? Maybe that'll make your notifications uh, a little nicer, something like that. Uh, and, or maybe there'll be some other new feature sets that they'll, they'll add in. I mean, it's probably going to be just as successful as the Mi Band 3. So will there be a Mi Band 5? Sure. So if your Mi Band 3 still works beautifully, maybe just wait for the, for the Mi Band 4. Um, the heart rate monitoring is supposed to be better on this one, but I don't think that that's like an improved feature. Okay, because like I said, first off, heart rate monitoring kills battery life, even on the Mi Band 3. And two, you know, you don't have to give them that much data. Okay, so <laughs> uh, so I, I always turn all that shit off anyway on, you know, on my Mi Band. But um, but yeah, we'll, we'll when the Mi Band 4, it, if and when it does come to, uh, you know, to the colonies here, I'm sorry, to the United States, um, well, I'll be picking one up. So anyway, let's get into our lead story and this is stuff that, well, I think this is actually major, major news, uh, far bigger than I think maybe a lot of people would realize. So on June 5th, um, one of the, what is generally considered one of the biggest events in, uh, in the tech world, uh, went down and that is of course the worldwide developer conference, WWDC, Apple's what used to be like their big, big event. Now their big event has kind of moved to the fall. That's true for a lot of companies. It's true for Microsoft. It's also true for Google, who usually has their 10-4 event, blah, blah, blah. Um, WWDC, so I did end up watching this. And there was, I got to tell you, there was a moment where even though it wasn't Steve Jobs, obviously, on that stage, that... I fell into the magical Apple reality distortion field just for a moment because I was very intrigued by what I saw and to some degree intrigued by something we talked about two episodes ago for our uh, story of the week, which really was more of a topic. And two episodes ago on Sovereign Tech, that would be with episode 328. If you remember, I was talking about how to separate. This is kind of similar to what we were just saying with the Mi Band 4 right? How you're trying to have these other devices that sort of help you get away from, you know, the different, I mean, understand most of us have to lead really like three lives. Some of us have to leave more or lead We're not leave, but well, maybe you should, but you should leave them, but, but lead more lives. Um, you know, especially if you have a family, things like this. Okay. So, you know, there's your work life, there's your social life, then there's, you know, your personal life, but then also there's your very private life, which I think 
more of us want to admit we have that very private life. And, we, and honestly, we always have, um, you know, just not all of us have, uh, have talked about it, you know, like maybe Marquis de Sade, <laughs> well, when you're in prison, yeah, well, never mind. Uh, so, <laughs> that's so bad. Uh, but, <laughs> but, you know, we lead a lot of different lives and we find ourselves putting all of these lives and they all getting intermingled and never really being able to concentrate on one of those lives very well because they all end up on either one device, be it our laptop or on our smartphone or whatever. And so a couple of weeks ago I had said, um, that, you know, maybe something we should do is, is actually separate our very, very pri our private life, not even our social, maybe our social life, Depends on where those fit in, but our, our private life, have that separated, have that be under the purview and done on, because we do everything digitally now pretty much, or at least a lot of us do, done on a tablet, not on your laptop, not on your smartphone, but on a tablet, a completely se self-contained separate device that is all about what you want to do personally, privately. Now, one of the points that I brought up in that is that, you know, maybe if you're like an Android user, that one of the ways to get your head, I mean, the idea is in using a tablet, okay, you're going to see how this relates. And those that also watch WWDC, you're going to, you already probably have this figured out. But I said, if you, you know, if you're somebody who uses Android a lot, that, because again, one of the things you want to do is, is that you want to you have to change your mindset. You have to look at that tablet. If the tablet is for your private life, you need to get into the mode of not thinking about work, not thinking about social bullshit, whatever you're engaging in your private life, whatever that looks like. Okay. I said, one of the things, if you're an Android user, it might be helpful just to get your head in the game or out of the game, perhaps is to actually buy an iPad. You know, because you're going to end up in a completely different, uh, you know, user interface, a completely different UI than what you're used to, say, on Windows or on Android or anything like that. And, you know, that way, you know, OK, this is my private personal world on this device. OK, now I had said over the past couple of weeks that, you know, that episode, the episode that came after that, talking about the tablets, that that's going to be like part of this trilogy Consider this an addendum to that. This is not the final part of the trilogy. That'll have to come either next week or maybe even the week afterwards, okay? But regardless of that, so to talk about WWDC, I think the biggest news, now there's something to be said around, there was a finally a new Mac Pro released. There is something to say around that, and we'll, we'll talk about that. There was also iOS 13, which big news around that, dark mode, blah, 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 you know, and I know there's some other things. But... You know, again, I'll, I'll get into the Mac Pro. I think that's worth talking about. But I think the biggest thing worth talking about at WWDC is Apple's, well, what Steve Jobs had called the magical device, that being the iPad itself, their tablet. Because now the iPad, and at the end of the day, I know some people want to argue, and I understand it, that really the iPad already had its own operating system, basically. But now Apple has made it explicit that, and that is, they have announced iPad OS. Probably not a surprise, especially to a lot of Apple users. And again, the idea that really iPad already had its own OS comes from the notion that there are iPhone apps that wouldn't work on iPad, even though they use the same app store, basically, and vice versa is also true. Okay, now, uh, I think it might have actually been last year's or the year previous's WWDC, where... 
they had announced that, oh, now there's TV OS, and this is when they rebranded uh, OS 10 to Mac OS, and then there's watch OS, then there's iOS. Now we actually add another OS that, that technically Apple is developing, and that is iPad OS. But I think this, I think iPad OS is part of a much bigger picture, something that we've been talking about for a very long time on Cyber Tech. We said, I said years ago, when they came out with the 128 gig iPad, and I think this was during like the iPad 2 or iPad 3 days, years ago, okay, over five years ago, I said, Apple is looking to turn the iPad, that is going to become their main product, that is going to basically become their, you know, their, their computer that they're going to offer you. I mean, iPhone's still going to be the thing, but that's going to be their computer. The, I, the concept of Mac OS, the concept of the MacBook is just going to fall away. It's just going to die. Now, again, we're going to talk about the Mac pro in a minute. Okay. There's, there's more to, to, to get around that, but iPad OS is really the fruition of that. Now, also, we if you remember last year, there was a lot of talk about, it. in fact, I think it was at WWDC, this WWDC felt more like a Steve jobs, WWDC, the past couple WWDCs, even though it's, again, it's in the name developer conference really did feel like it was more for developers and there weren't like major product releases and, or anything like that. This was more of a classic WWDC that people got used to like the WWDC where the iPad originally got announced and so on. And Apple's even using the language that iPad OS is the biggest thing to happen to iPad since the iPad, you know, since the iPad itself, uh, even came into existence. And I'm not even necessarily going to disagree with that sentiment. Okay. Because, and this is, I mean, there, there, there's a few, I mean, there's a lot of features that they're adding in with iPad OS, but there's one in particular that is a really, really huge deal and easily the biggest change that ever happened to the iPad. And what ultimately does make it a, I would argue a quote unquote real computer for the first time. And that is, I mean, I'll let that out of the bag, but there's more conversation in the abstract to have around the iPad now. Uh, but basically you can now plug in, um, used to be able to plug in SD cards. That's not new to get photos off of it, but now you can, you can plug in thumb drives, SD cards, and external hard drives. Okay. And like on the iPad pro, you have the USB C port anyway. Right. Um, so, you know, you're not going to need a whole bunch of odd connectors. I mean, if you got to convert to lightning, I guess this could be a different story. Um, but regardless, now you can plug in, basically you can, you can plug in external hard drives into the iPad. That is a major deal. That is a massive fucking deal. Okay. Because now you can have external storage with the iPad and that's even getting away from iCloud in its own way, which there's something interesting about that, but I'm still kind of chewing on that one. Regardless, um, the fact that now you can put in, you can plug in external drives. Um, I think it would get way more interesting. Even if you could plug in just about any external device, that feature might be coming down the line. Um, like if you could, you know, the iPad does have such a gorgeous screen, granted it's smaller, but if you could plug in a Blu-ray drive, you know, into an iPad, color me intrigued. Um, regardless of that. Anyway, so that, that's kind of the really, really big deal here, but iPad OS, I mean, there's other stuff going on here too. Let, let's look at the, at the feature list. So, um, now it allows for, uh, pinning, pinning widgets. And I mean, like there's basically way more to way more room on the home screen. They've taken better advantage of all of that real estate, which traditionally Apple has done a shitty job with, um, on, 
you know, on iOS specifically and on iPads uh, specifically. But regardless, you've got a lot of room. There's there, you can do multitasking now where there's like a slide over mode where you can quickly like flip through different uh, apps quickly. But now you, you can basically multitask on an iPad. That's that's the idea. I mean, you could before, but now there's like a UI that that really like calls you basically to multitask um, that that's getting more into this where the iPad again is now a full on computer. Um, you now have the full desktop version of Safari, which that is a dramatic change. And as I said earlier in this episode, Safari is a great, a great web browser. I have no problem with Safari. I recommend Safari. I mean, I hell even when it was getting developed for windows, I used Safari all the time, especially because I love the, the cover flow for tabs and everything and bookmarks. It was great. Um, so you get the full desktop Safari. That is, and again, when you consider the importance of the web browser, okay, like we were discussing earlier, how that is the way people generally engage. For many people, that is basically the computer. They don't even give a shit about the OS. Um, this becomes a big deal to have a full desktop version of a, you know, of a web browser on there. And that's really what you're getting with the, with the iPad, uh, you know, and with, we're with iPad OS. Uh, you have more better file management. They're improving that again, in addition to allowing you to, you know, put hook up external drives and everything. So this is more of that, making this into a full on computing device. Um, there's camera support where you can, you can plug in a camera directly into the iPad. Again, you used to be able to plug in an SD card to like transfer photos from your camera. Now you can just plug the camera right fucking into the iPad. Uh, obviously creators are going to be really big on this, uh, font support. Now you can put in different fonts and, you know, custom fonts and everything. I'm sure Steve jobs is, you know, looking down from on, from on high, relax folks. I'm an, I'm an atheist, but he's looking down from on high saying, thank you. You have given people fonts, which is what I gave the world. <laughs> you know, Cause he was so crazy about fonts. Uh, anyway, uh, so whatever, but font support. Great. Okay. There you go. Um, a lot more can be done with the Apple pencil now. And there's also sidecar, which I think this is interesting where sidecar in iPad OS allows the iPad to basically be used as a second monitor for your Mac, you know, for your MacBook or the all new Mac pro, um, that gets into interesting territory, but you know, actually there's an episode of the gaming grid where we were talking about, uh, what we knew previously about Google Stadia. There is a huge announcement around Google Stadia. I'm going to talk about that on another episode of the Gaming Grid, which will be coming out June 2019. We'll break all that down. But if you listen to the idea of having like a lot, I mean, multi-monitor is not, not new, but there's something to be said for, you know, having a second monitor that has horsepower behind it of things that could be done. And I kind of broke into that a little bit in my conversation, my original conversation about Google Stadia. You'll have to listen back to some episodes of the gaming grid to, you know, to, to really break down into that. But sidecar is also a, you know, a very interesting feature um, to have here. So, I mean, it, cause it can do, again, it's not just a second monitor. There's a, you know, there's, there's a lot more that you can do with it. Like it can be a drawing tablet, you know, connected to your computer. I mean, there's, there's, there's options here and there will be more coming forward. Just, just going down that list of 10 that I basically gave you, you can see, you can extrapolate where, okay, where are they, what are they going to do next in the future? And there's a lot of things that could end up happening here, but basically this, the iPad really has become, uh, now with iPad OS has become that replacement, I think for the MacBook. 
Now, the MacBook Pro is also a thing, and I do want to talk about that a little bit, okay? So you could say that, well, you know, if, if they're coming out with a new Mac Pro, which is the 6000 at at the entry level, it's $6,000. It can end up costing you probably double that at least, okay? Does that really mean that they're giving up on Mac OS and they're giving up on the traditional computer? You could say that that's not what that means, but really I think iPad OS, and we already knew this again from previous WWDCs, that Apple is looking to bake in iOS apps into Mac OS. So while they have created different operating systems, or you like to think of them as different operating systems, really I think down the line, iPad OS and Mac OS are basically going to become one. As to where iPad OS is an offshoot from iOS right, right now, Mac OS will basically fold into, and I think it's going to fold into iPad OS and they are just starting to change. Even, even sidecar is really about you getting used to your iPad being a part of your MacBook experience. And I think even that is kind of a slow way of conditioning you to thinking of using your iPad just a little bit more, just a little bit more until really the MacBook fades away. Okay. Now the Mac Pro, okay, again, this six thousand at, at just at the entry level, this six thousand dollar monster. Let, let let's look at some of this. Um, in fact, it's got that the cheese grater design is back from from the older Mac Pros, which I don't mind. I thought that was a good looking design. I mean, I was a fan. Well, I've said this many times. Next to the Commodore sixty four, my favorite computer of all time was the uh, was the Mac G four Cube. I think that is the most brilliant design that's just ever been done for a computer. It is, it's a stunning, it, it was a stunning little machine. But I also, I very much liked the G4, the G3, G4, G5 Mac Pros. Um, you know, the fact that you could like lift them up. I mean, they had the handles and all stuff. I, I mean, I, I really thought they had a great design. I like, you know, like the iMac and a lot of that, a lot of those classic designs that Apple had, I think were great. So I'm not opposed to, you know, to them really, you know, going back to a classic design, especially getting away from the trash can that was the last Mac Pro, which how many years ago was that one? It was at 2015 or something? Or no, it might even been further than that when that, that last refresh happened. But anyway, the cheese grater design is back and you are by design able to open this baby up. Okay, you are you know able to get in the innards and do improvements and everything. Obviously, Apple heard the arguments from the kind of people that would spend this kind of money on this computer. And, and look, $6,000. I mean, you don't, you can say that the Mac pro is not giving up on Mac OS. I disagree. Apple just knows that there are, there's a client base that they have been losing to honestly, to Microsoft over the past few years with like the, the, the surface um, desktop computer and so on that they lost to them and their creative abilities and they don't want to lose them, but it's not like it's a large amount of people, but it's an amount of people or it's, it's a group of people that are obviously very affluent and that, that kind of, you know, you don't have to sell many of these Mac pros. They're not looking to do a burgeoning business with this. They just don't want to lose people to another ecosystem. Okay, they don't want to lose people to Microsoft's ecosystem. And those people are high dollar people where, because the specs I'm about to read off to you, to do this with a Windows computer, you could do it, I think, for even less than half of the price tag. Okay, you know, you could probably do it for a couple grand, let alone, you know, three grand 
which would just be half price. But Apple's charging you, of course, the Apple tax uh, for six grand. Now, there's some argument like there's the afterburner, the Apple afterburner graphics, which is supposed to be some special graphics feature uh, that's only on there. They, but there's no way I don't care how many millions of pixels that can do. There's no fucking way that that's worth the Apple tax that you're paying for, for, for the Mac pro. So the Mac pro, uh, you can get up to a 28 core Intel Xeon with 300 Watts of power. Woo. <laughs> fucking a 28 core. Uh, and th those, those clients are out there. Okay. But that's the thing. You don't have to sell many of them. All right. It justifies itself in the Apple tax that you base. And folks, if you don't know the Apple taxes, you pay extra money just because it's Apple. Okay. That's the Apple tax. Anyway, up to 1.5 terabytes of system memory, system memory. You understand? Okay. You know, we're not talking about, <laughs> that's fucking insane. Uh, anyway. Okay. Um, eight PCI, uh, PCIe expansion slots. Uh, let's see a Radeon pro Vega two duo or a Radeon pro 580 X graphics cards. Not surprising support for up to two MPX modules, which feature Thunderbolt support and 500 Watts of power afterburner graphics, ASIC. Uh, so they have, yeah. Anyway, in can process was, yeah, here it is. 6 billion pixels per second. Ooh, oh boy. It can do three streams of eight K raw. I mean, that's impressive. I'm not going to say it's not impressive, but Anyway, that, that comes at a cost. Uh, two Thunderbolt 3 ports, two US, uh, USB-A ports. Uh, they have the 3.5 millimeter audio jack on there. Where's that courage, Apple? I'm waiting. Come on, I thought getting rid of the fucking headphone jack was... That's the future. I guess that just proves the point. The Mac Pro is not about the future. The Mac Pro is about appeasing the past and the affluent past who still kind of need this hardware. And it makes sense as long as you charge enough, it makes sense to still make this and not lose these people out of your ecosystem entirely. This is an appeasement move. This is not about Apple supporting Mac OS anymore because they're not, this is all about appeasement. Um, anyway, two built in 10 gigabit ethernet ports, whatever this is. I mean, just a crazy, crazy, easily one of the most powerful computers out there that you can buy or potentially can be, but you're going to pay thousands way more than $6,000 uh, for the privilege of using it. So the Mac pro, you know, I mean, Hey, would I turn one down if someone wanted to drop one on my desk? No. Okay. But also like it doesn't necessarily excite me. I'll admit though, there's a part of me. I said, like I said, at the beginning of this conversation that kind of fell into the distortion field where I was like, wow, you know, that iPad. And really, Apple has to do this. You have to understand, Apple, just like every other company, Microsoft coming out with the Surface Go, you know, Google doubling down on the Chromebook and adding more and more features, especially, you know, more traditional desktop features to, to their Chromebooks, okay? Um, these companies, they know they have to do this. Apple has to do this to compete with what Microsoft and what Google are doing specifically. Just like Microsoft knows it has to create that Chromebook-esque device, so does Apple. And the iPad is in that direction. It's just the iPad is basically the Chromebook with the Apple tax. That's really what this is going to end up becoming. Now, it's not exactly a slight towards the Chromebook because much like the Chromebook, which is a very other than as far as Google knowing everything that you're doing and owning your ass, the Chromebook, or I mean, the, the iPad is a very secure device. I've argued an iPad OS is basically iOS in many ways, you know, with some new bells and whistles and important ones. I'm not degrade, you know, I'm not knocking that. Um, 
But iOS, as I've said for years, out of the box is probably the most secure operating system out there. Out of the box. You know, if you want to get tweaking and everything, that, that story changes. But just opening up and turning a device on, iOS is about as secure as you can get. iPadOS is the same deal. That is the argument for the Chromebook, is that it is, you know, so incredibly secure. And it is. So Apple is going after that. Just they can charge the Apple price tag for this sort of thing. Um, but I mean, keep in mind that the more they make iPads into traditional computers, that when you start looking at, for say, like the new iPad Air or the iPad Mini, and you're looking at price tags around 400, you know, 400 to 500, uh, you get in the iPad Pros, you can go up to anywhere, you know, you can go up to like $1,600. I mean, and there's, you know, not iPad Pros have one terabyte hard drives in them. I mean, if that's not telling you it's a computer, I don't know what is. Okay. Uh, that was the first sign years ago that the iPad was going to replace the MacBook was the larger the hard drive got on it, the more Apple was, exp the more, uh, you know, power and the more use, uh, you know, Apple was expecting you to get out of it beyond just being some kind of consumption device. Okay. So, which is traditionally what, you know, tablets and or what mobile devices in general are, okay, outside of communication. So Apple basically has to do this while Microsoft is going all in on the always connected PCs, right? And Chromebooks are becoming more and more, they were already sort of the, well, they were the mobile devices of the laptop world in a very real way and very inexpensive and all this. And while they're, you know, they're going after that market, okay, um, Apple knows they have to close in on this, that that is still something that, that people want and need. And so they are coming out with that computer that you can buy for, you know, I, I mean, and understand this, like a lot of people found the Mac mini, not the iPad mini, the Mac mini to be a very attractive proposition because you were getting a full on OS at the time, OS 10 experience in a very small package for only like $500. And that was seen as, holy shit, I'm in the Apple ecosystem for only $500. That was seen as a steal a decade ago. It really was. And now... You know, now if you can get into the best that Apple has to offer for whatever that ends up looking like, okay, for people for only $400, $500 with an iPad, because that is the main computing device for Apple in the future. Again, not just yet. MacBook, MacBooks are still a thing. Mac Pro is still there. Okay. But it's coming. Then I think that's going to be very attractive to people. And for me to want to have that device that is more full featured Okay, like the arguments that I made for tablets two episodes ago that is more full featured, but is my personal device and that I can quickly stone go. You know, this is the argument for the always connected PC from Microsoft. This is the argument for, you know, smaller Chromebooks that have, you know, odd form factors and dual screens and all this stuff is that it's something you just stow and go. You toss it into a little, you know, into a purse, into a little gym bag, whatever, and away you go. You know, to have that sort of thing, I mean, that was very, very attractive. And even to me, it was very attractive because of the reasons that I laid out to you earlier as well about how, you know, when you're dealing with a different UI, it puts you in a very different mindset. Um, I'm not going to go out and buy one of these right now. I'm curious to see more. There's a few other feet, couple other features I'd really like an iPad to have before I do this. But there's a part of me that's, you know, I, selling the fact that that Apple at least recognizes external storage, you know, but also personal like external storage that you have like external hard drives, right? I'm, I'm staring to my right on my desk and there's my eight terabyte hard drive. Okay. You know, I mean like that, that gives me a bit of confidence and, and it, it is, it is, it does seem, I think for a lot of people, probably counterintuitive because Apple is so big about not having you connect to external devices, right? 
or like getting away from media or, you know, storage that they don't sell you, like how they killed the floppy disk, quote unquote, killed the floppy disk, how they killed, um, you know, the, the, or they think they killed the, the optical disk drive. No, they didn't. But <laughs> regardless how they think they killed that, um, how they think that, you know, they don't want you to have to, I mean, they were getting rid of ports right and left on the MacBook, just the straight MacBook, right? That only has the one USB-C. They're getting rid of so many ports because they don't want you connecting external shit. But now look at this whole turnaround. Apple's learned some kind of lesson. And the iPad is, it's very interesting that they have, I mean, this is the opposite of courage, you know, because now you can connect that, you know, they want you able to connect external drives, uh, you know, to, to the iPad, which would seem to go against the ethic that they're trying to push with the MacBook. And also, I mean, let's ultimately keep in mind that any device, okay, that, that Apple's putting out there is to get you into the Apple ecosystem and the Apple ecosystem, you know, now, I mean, we're talking about like, you know, their, their TV, they're basically their, their, their entertainment network, you know, where they have amazing stories like the show, amazing stories, you know, JJ Abrams is there, Spielberg's there, they're making content for it. Uh, or, you know, or Apple arcade, right. That's, that's another big part of this. That's the whole reason they came out with a new iPod touch, right. Uh, is because that's really about getting people into Apple arcade. I mean, iPad OS is part of having this device, and I think like an attractive device for people to want to buy into again, to buy into that Apple ecosystem and maybe not to have to purchase uh, a MacBook, which does come somewhat at, at a justified premium somewhat because of the, you know, the quality materials uh, used. Now there's quality materials used for the iPad as well, but they, you know, it's not at the level of what you have to, you know, sell off um, with the MacBook. So let's make this very clear. Apple, this is a company totally in transition as of WWDC 2019, totally in transition. And I mean, it's something I think they've had in mind for a long while, but now it's finally coming to fruition where the iPad needs to take over, you know, basically everything. And again, there's a lot, I mean, we didn't even get into the economic uh, uh, arguments around it, like, or we kind of started to with what it takes to make, you know, how much it costs to make a MacBook as compared to how much it costs to make an iPad. Those are two wildly different numbers. And the iPad is far more economical even for Apple to produce. And also it gets them because it has their, their A10 or A12 chips, whatever, you know, model we're talking about. It also gets them away from reliance upon Intel, right? It's more of their, you know, internal production, but I'll, I'll be frank with you. I would not be surprised if the iPad becomes the most used computer minus not counting smartphones but the most used computer in the world in fairly short order. This is, I almost feel like when I was watching that, the, the iPad announcement, it felt like an iMac moment to me where an iMac, the iMac totally changed Apple's fortunes in 98, totally changed. I even bought into it. I bought an iMac, you know, as soon as they, they were announced, I had the first gen fuck what a computer. I still love that computer. God damn it. Um, this is, this is a pretty major shift. And it, well, anyway, just another thing that we'll be keeping an eye on and we'll see how the prediction goes on Sovereign Tech. Anyway, we'll be right back with some more Sovereign Tech. Got a lot more to talk about. Woo! We'll be right back. Hey, if you have a project that needs reliable cryptocurrency data, check out blocktap.io. Blocktap.io is a universal cryptocurrency API. You can get historical prices for Bitcoin and other digital assets that you can use to build charts and do market analysis. Blockchain data is also indexed, 
so you can get transaction statistics, address balances, and more for Bitcoin and other networks. Blocktap.io is free for personal use, and you don't even need to create an account to access the API. To get started, try some of the example queries on the homepage at Blocktap.io. Again, that's B-L-O-C-K-T-A-P.io, Blocktap.io, and we thank them for sponsoring Sovereign Tech. Woo, let's get back to the show. This week in blockchain. You know, I'll tell you. So the <laughs> the amount of times that someone either gets theorized or claimed that they are Bitcoin creators, Satoshi Nakamoto, I mean, it it'll just make your head spin. Just a couple episodes ago, did a whole segment talking about unbelievably how Slapnuts, uh, I'm sorry, Craig Wright is claiming to be, and now he's like, he says he'll sue anybody that, uh, that otherwise tries to claim that he's Satoshi not, or that they are Satoshi Nakamoto, or if anyone like says that they're not Satoshi, he's going to uh, oh man. Uh, I mean, can you imagine, can, can you really imagine that the guy that invented Bitcoin would act that way? You know, that look, I'll sue, I'll sue, I'll sue. If you say you are, or if you say I'm not, I'm going to come and get you. And, and can can you picture, I mean, we're talking about a guy who's planning on, you know, this, this dramatic upheaval of how civilization itself works. And that's how, you know, ask a lot of people that are really into Bitcoin. That's their claim is that that's what it would do. And myself included, I think Bitcoin has dramatically changed on small, you know, on, on micro levels, macro levels, every level has dramatically changed life on earth. It really has. And, and I would say largely for the best. You know, people want to talk about or complain about crypto locker and whatever, blah, blah, blah. But no, anyway. <laughs> so another uh, name has basically another hat has been tossed into the ring, as it were. Uh, this circus, it's actually a very fitting analogy. Um, and this is actually from Reason Magazine. Okay. Uh, and it uh, by Peter Sutterman. And this is from 2019. It's very fresh from June 5th. And here, here's the headline. Let's 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 give you the headline. If we told you Neil Stevenson invented Bic- Bitcoin, would you be surprised? Um, okay, now I'm going to read a little bit of the evidence that they have, and let's be clear here: they only have a little bit. In fact, they have about as much evidence for Neil Stevenson as just about anybody else has for being Satoshi Nakamoto. And let's be clear here: the ultimate way to just prove that someone's Satoshi Nakamoto you know, have the private keys, move a little coin from Satoshi's wallet. And that there it is open shut case. Well, I mean, more or less, or as good as that's as good as evidence as we could get. That's all somebody has to do to prove it. Now reason, you know, Neil Stevenson isn't coming out and claiming that he's Satoshi. Neil Stevenson isn't that kind of idiot. In fact, he's quite the opposite. Uh, you know, I would argue Craig, Craig Wright is that much of an idiot and not the opposite, but Neil Stevenson's genuinely a brilliant guy. I, I am quite a fan of most of his works. So me saying, and I'll just say this outright, you know, if I'm going to answer, would, would it surprise here? Let me, let me put it this way because reason was very clevered, very reasoned in the way that they worded this, <laughs> but really it was just clever. Um, would I be surprised to find out that Neil Stevenson created Bitcoin? No. I wouldn't be surprised if, if it was him. Uh, in fact, in just in the, what he writes, and that's largely what reason magazine is running off of here, you know, like based on what he writes. Yeah. I mean, it would, you, it'd be very believable. 
you know, that, that, that he is Satoshi Nakamoto. Do I think that Neil Stevenson is Satoshi Nakamoto? Absolutely not. If Neil, if Satoshi Nakamoto was actually a team of people, could Neil Stevenson have been on that team? Maybe. You know, I mean, I will say like whoever is Satoshi Nakamoto, they're doing it right based upon what, what I, we had talked about last week. We had a big topic about living in obscurity, right? Uh, Satoshi did it right because clearly he changed the world, but then he doesn't have to take any credit for it or take any shit more importantly for it. Right? So whoever Satoshi is gal guy Z team, um, they're again, they are doing it right. They're living in obscurity. Uh, and I think Neil Stevenson would actually would have in a very real way, um, agree with that. You know, I personally, the reason that I think Neil, Neil Stevenson isn't is that again, I, I know his writing very well. I haven't read his latest book fall that it literally just came out. I have not read that yet. I've already actually, uh, my, my brother, uh, Robin Freebeard, he's like, oh man, he says, it's almost like Neil Stevenson listens to sovereign tech. It's like, you gotta, you gotta read the book. And so I, I will read it. Okay. I, I will check it out. And I, I appreciate his recommendation. I, I trust there's, there's few people else in the world that I trust uh, the recommendations more on. So I, I, I'm, I'm totally about reading, uh, his new book, but I've read all of his other stuff, seventies, all of it. Okay. And he's Neil Stevenson. Part of what makes his work so great. A it's very lengthy, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages. In fact, I think fall is only, is only 900 pages. That's amazing. I mean, I remember the first time I read Neil Stevenson, uh, I read, um, what was it? The, the Cyphernomicon? I'm sorry. Cryptonomicon. Um, I read the Cryptonomicon and I mean, cause that the reason I read it is just my eyes were drawn to it because here I am in the science fiction section at Barnes and Noble, which is where I always hung out. And I'm just, I just see this monster book. You couldn't help but stare at it. And so, you know, you had to buy it for the price. Same reason I read Battlefield Earth. Don't talk shit about that. Don't talk shit about the book Battlefield Earth. Fuck L. Ron Hubbard. Fuck that movie. But that book is fucking amazing. And if you don't believe me, go ask, well, go ask Neil Gaiman. He'll tell you straight how great that book is. But anyway, regardless of that. Okay. So, you know, fall it's, it's a shorter book, but here's the thing. Part of the reason that Neil Stevenson's books are so long is because he goes into such depth and technical explanation as much as is possible with what he's talking about. Okay. Um, to, to how something works. And I just, I feel like there would have, if he came up with Bitcoin alone, especially he would have come up with, or he would have written down somewhere in some book in the past, he would have laid out far more of the technical aspects to this, you know, the business Byzantine generals problem and so on. I really feel like he, he would have done that and he would have been, wouldn't have been afraid to because he kind of did the same with the internet in a very real way. Um, let me read the article or read some of the article here from reason, uh, you know, about their, their argument as to why, but well, anyway, I'll, I'll We'll talk more after. Here we go. But consider this brief history. This is from the story. In 1995, more than a decade before the birth of Bitcoin, Stevenson, Stevenson published his fourth novel, The Diamond Age, or A Young Lady's Illustrated Primer. About two-thirds of the way through the book, there's a passage describing the media net, an anonymous peer-to-peer communication system, quote, designed from the ground up to provide privacy and security so that people could use it to transfer money, end quote. Nation states, as we know, as we now know, uh, as we now know them, have collapsed. The story explains because, quote, financial transactions could no longer be monitored by governments, end quote, rendering tax collection impossible. While he's at it, Stevenson breezily imagines technologies that resemble both the iPad and Alexa style artificial intelligence voice recognition as well. 
Uh, four years later, Stevenson published Cryptonomicon, a large adult son of a novel that traces, and it is that, like I said, that one's huge, uh, that traces both the World War II or- origins of cryptography and efforts by a group of 90s era hacker entrepreneurs to set up a system of uh, a system of anonymous online banking and digital currency outside the reach of traditional governments. He followed this with the Baroque cycle, a trio of novels, which, uh, approximately with each approximately the size of a piece of industrial farm equipment, exploring the historical foundations of math, money, and modern philosophy. Stevenson, in other words, described the core concepts of cryptocurrency years before Bitcoin became a technical reality. At bare minimum, you can be sure he spent a lot of time thinking about these concepts and the technical challenges they might pose. Even if Stevenson had no direct role in the creation of Bitcoin, it is hard to imagine that its creators were not aware of and likely heavily influenced by his writing so that's the thing is that and they go into a little anyway they they eventually they they go to 2008 with the you know the, the bitcoin white paper coming out and everything that's really all the evidence they have but that's kind of my point is that while i agree that stevenson predicted or theorized you know and you know a lot of things uh that that kind of exists now even like the ipad Again, he wasn't the only one to do this sort of thing uh, at all. In fact, in 2001, there's the the great book, uh, Pirate Utopias by Peter Ludlow. I've actually argued in the past, I've personally tossed in Peter Ludlow's name into his hat, into the ring of people that could be Satoshi Nakamoto, or at the very least, he was part of the team. Because in that 2001 book, Pirate Utopias, and I recommend you read it, okay, like it lays out way more detail than Stevenson ever did in any of his books about something like Bitcoin. And then, you know, that's not even getting into hash cash. Uh, and you can read, you know, lots of stuff from the nineties and various cypherpunk forums about how digital money would effectively work. Now, here's the thing is that reason honestly kind of like makes an argument against their own argument, which is that the quote that they pulled from, from diamond age is it's designed from the ground up to provide privacy and security so that people could use it to transfer money. And it talks about how nation states collapsed because financial transactions could no longer be monitored by governments. That's not true of Bitcoin, that they could no longer be monitored by governments. Bitcoin is not anonymous. Bitcoin is pseudonymous. Now there's wallet software and, you know, I mean that you can do, there's tricks you can do that make it, that can make it anonymous, but that wasn't part of Bitcoin proper. Okay. That is more under the purview of say your Monero's, your Zcash, um, you know, or like horizon, go down the list of those kinds of, uh, you know, of cryptocurrencies, the privacy coins. Those are ones where, especially like with Zcash, you know, with ZK Snarks, where, okay, no, a government can't see what's going on. But with Bitcoin, it's a public ledger. And I don't really recall where Stevenson, you know, laid out that, I mean, the public ledger aspect of Bitcoin, in many ways, is its central tenet. Yeah, the peer-to-peer one, of course, the peer-to-peer public ledger. But it is a public ledger. So, yeah, I, I think they kind of make an argument against their own thing. So, and that's why I don't think it's Stevenson because, I mean, I would agree with reason that whoever did, whoever Satoshi Nakamoto was, were they influenced by Stevenson's work? Sure. I don't think that's crazy at all. Um, could he have been on the team if Satoshi was actually a team of people, which is highly likely? Sure. But, you know, I mean, if I were, so if I were a relatively famous science fiction author, which Neil Stevenson is and a damn fine one. Okay. If I were that, and I came up with Bitcoin and I was going to write the code. I was going to be knee deep in the process. It was going to be me, 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 me. 
honestly, I would have included it. And look, Bitcoin has been around for a decade now. I would have included it in one of my books to get people excited and ready so that it could be, you know, so that it was something that would, could be taken more seriously. I mean, cause Bitcoin has had a long road to get proven even by its initial, the initial subcultures that were really its strongest adherents. It took a long time for Bitcoin to really get accepted by, you know, say groups like, uh, you know, various anarchist groups, anarcho-capitalists, libertarians, and so on. I mean, I know, cause I was there, you had so many people, you had the gold bugs who were saying, oh, but you know, if the internet goes down, oh, this isn't going to work. You got to you stick with gold and all that. It took a long time to get those people on board, but eventually a lot of them did finally convert over to where, you know, okay, they were on, you know, they liked Bitcoin and they understood what it was doing. So, I mean, I would have used my writing to get people more and more ready. Okay. For, and you know, and science fiction's good for this. Okay. Um, in fact, there's even a quote in this article where Neil Stevenson talks about this and, and there was audio we played at the beginning that, that kind of hints at this, but the idea that science fiction isn't just a literary format. It's a way of allowing the engineers of the future. Basically it's a way of wargaming, for lack of a better term of here, here, here it is. This is quote, this is what science fiction can do. Stevenson once told Lightspeed magazine is provide not just an idea for some specific technical innovation, but also supply a coherent picture of that innovation being integrated into a society and an economy End quote. So basically he's saying, no, look, this is a mental tool that is part of the engineering process. It's part of the technical process to bring a innovation into being and into civilization. It's part of the process. It's not just fiction. And I have, I've said the same thing many times over the years. Okay. But Stevenson is right in doing so. So if I were him and I were the creator of this and I wanted it to be successful and, you know, I wanted it to be like, uh, what's the, actually it's the, the, one of the main characters in his new book, uh, as well. But, um, oh fuck. What, what the hell's the, the character's name? Rich, Richard something. Anyway, whatever. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. Richard, uh, Dodge Forthrest, right. You know, if you're wanting to be that guy, who's like, what is this guy who created this technology and is rich, but is ethical at the end and blah, blah, you know, how is, I mean, you'd want Bitcoin to go up in value and this would be such an easy way to do that. So yeah, I just, I, I don't buy it. I mean, it's an interesting thing. Ultimately, could this just be reason magazine, honestly, just doing some, uh, I mean, this could be native advertising, like this whole string of articles about, you know, claiming or not that Neil Stevenson is claiming. Cause again, I, I think he's a lot smarter than to do such a thing. Um, and if he were Satoshi Nakamoto, he'd be smart enough to know not to claim, or, you know, not to even hint, uh, necessarily that he is Satoshi Nakamoto again, writing up something like Bitcoin in your, in your fiction. Okay. Is I don't think necessarily implies that, for example, like was it, is it Daniel Suarez? who wrote, uh, you know, his books had something similar to Bitcoin in it. And I think actually some people I think have theorized that he, that Daniel Suarez might be Satoshi Nakamoto, but you know, you don't see his name really getting bantied about much. Okay. So there's no, just because you technically lay out either the effects or the more of the technicals around what Bitcoin would become doesn't mean that people are going to point the finger at you saying that you're Satoshi Nakamoto. I far more believe that all of these stories making the rounds about Neil Stevenson, it's really just some kind of very clever, perhaps even by his publisher. It's just clever native advertising to get his newest book, uh, you know, to sell gangbusters and it's probably working. Okay. And reason magazine, you know, kind of started it off. I mean, I, I, I could, I could totally believe that, that that's, that's what's going on.
So, yeah, Neil Stevenson, Satoshi Nakamoto, nah, I don't think so. And again, at the end of the day, as I've said many times on this show, I don't really care who Satoshi Nakamoto is. This is just one where I think we got to we gotta look at the reality of why this story is even making the rounds. Again, I think it's just native advertising for his new book. And look, I'm not knocking Neil Stevenson. He might have had nothing to do with this. Could have very easily just been his publisher who just wants to sell copies of those books. I think Neil Stevenson is tremendous. I love his work. I love all of his books. I mean, I'm, I'm a big, big fan. So I'm not really knocking him on that. But I think that's what's really going on here. I think a lot of times when somebody wants to make these kinds of claims, that's exactly what's going on is it's just some kind of native advertising advertising to get people looking at their shit. Okay. Um, or it's just, you know, some kind of quackery from, you know, slap nuts. I mean, uh, Craig Wright, you know, it's something like that. Um, yeah, yeah. I, 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 the, this one, I just wanted to make sure kind of, or at least as much as we can got put to bed. I mean, understand like there's the Jesus test, right? Like how do you prove that Jesus actually existed? it's a very tough thing to do, or it's actually what they call the George Washington test. Okay. It's just, it's been applied to Jesus where like, how do you prove that George Washington ever existed? Believe it or not, that's actually a very difficult process, uh, you know, to go through. In fact, it leads to conspiracy theories where people think, Oh, actually George Washington was Adam Weishaupt. He wasn't actually George Washington. That was like a later creation. Okay. Kind of a similar score. I think, I don't think we're ever going to know who Satoshi Nakamoto is. And I, once again, will say, I don't think we should know. I think it's better that we don't and we just let Bitcoin change the world as is. So anyway, that'll be it. I originally was going to talk about Flash Gordon in this episode. I'm going to save that. I know you for the climax. I'm going to save that for the uh, the next episode uh, of Sovereign Tech if we can get to it that during the climax. Um, but do you know if you want to talk about this stuff real quick? Okay, you're done listening to Sovereign Tech. Here, I want you to go check something out. Go to freetalklive.com. The number 27 talk show in the United States. You could talk about, do you think Neil Stevenson, Satoshi Nakamoto? Do you think the iPad's the computer of the future? Hell, Neil Stevenson might have seemed to even think that. You can talk about all that stuff by going to freetalklive.com. Check them out. I thank them for sponsoring Sovereign Tech. And of course, go to zomi1.com. You can become a direct sponsor of Sovereign Tech. You can become an executive producer of the show. You get access to thousands of hours of exclusive audio content. Check it out. I guarantee you won't be disappointed, especially by the amount of stuff that's there. And there's new stuff every week. Go to Zomio1.com for that. That's it for this week's Sovereign Tech. I will see all of you woo, on the other side. And go check out Free Talk Live, baby. Go for it. Anyway, that's it. See you on the other side. You just experienced Sovereign Tech. Go to SovereignTech.com. That's S-O-V-R-Y-N-Tech.com. And connect with us there. Find links from today's show. And catch our podcast feed. Sovereign Tech is copy heart. Copying art is an act of love, and love is not subject to law. So please, share the show however you like. Welcome to the evolution.
In 2014, he ran from Miami to San Francisco, raising awareness for Bitcoin and the homeless epidemic in America. And now he's doing it again. Blockchain evangelist and advocate for homeless rights, Jason King, is running across North America right now, from Miami to Santa Monica, right now. Five years later, his commitment to promoting blockchain technology and fighting the homeless epidemic in America is stronger than ever. And you can help Jason now by going to blockchainacrossamerica.com. While you're there, donate to Satoshi Forest Sanctuary Incorporated to help the homeless, along with all kinds of other ways you can help. Get involved today. BlockchainAcrossAmerica.com. That's BlockchainAcrossAmerica.com. Whoa! Can you get enough of the mana tomorrow? I didn't think so. Well... Now you're going to get even more, along with some of the hottest hosts and podcasts around, because now Sovereign Tech has become an entire network. Zomia One, the most rebellious podcast network in the galaxy, with bleeding-edge shows covering science, technology, and even pop culture. Podcasts like Sovereign Trek, bringing you the latest and greatest in everything Star Trek. TIE Fighter Renegades, a Star Wars podcast, where the man of tomorrow and Robin Freebeard talk Star Wars like no other show out there. The Hard and Fast Podcast, where metal is king and the latest album reviews and interviews with the greatest acts in hard rock and heavy metal happen. And you can even become a member of the Zomia One Underground and get access to thousands of hours of exclusive content and shows. And this isn't Patreon, baby. Oh, no. This is all happening on the premier podcast platform, Podbean. So head over to Zomia1.com, that's Z-O-M-I-A-O-N-E.com, and become a part of the future with Zomia1, and become a member of the Zomia1 Underground, and while you're at it, download the Podbean app on iOS and Android. Be the future. Zomia1.com.